0: You're listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to World Spirituality, exploring the unity within all cultures and faith traditions with your host, Rev. Paul John Roach.
1: So hello and welcome to World Spirituality on the Unity Online Radio Network. I'm your host, Paul John Rhodes, coming to you from a lovely late September day in Fort Worth, Texas. Today, I welcome the author of a fascinating retelling of the first 36 years of the Buddha's life from the perspective of his wife, Yashodhara, it's entitled fittingly, shoulder and the Buddha. The uh, the author, Vanessa R. Sasson, is uh, a professor, teaches religious studies in the liberal and creative arts department of Marianopolis College in Canada. She's also the author. Excuse me, I'm going to have to cough. <coughs> this is the problem with live air, folks. Please bear with me. She's also the author of many academic texts, as well as The Birth of Moses and the Buddha, A Paradigm for the Comparative Study of Religion. I want to get hold of that book. It sounds fascinating. And editor of Little Buddhas, Children and Childhood in Buddhist Texts and Traditions. Fascinating stuff. So it's a real pleasure to welcome Dr. Sasson to today's show. Welcome. Glad you're with us.
2: Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you here today.
1: I thoroughly enjoyed reading your book uh, about your show that because it's part fairy tale, right? It's part feminist text. Um, It's part (laughs) um, page turner. And and it's a part reimagining of the dynamics of life in the kingdom where the, the Buddha Siddhartha was born. And uh, and so it, it's it's got a lot going for it, right? It's um it presents uh, this this uh, subject in a very interesting way.
2: Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think it's got a lot of those dimensions going at the same time. It's built. It's also it's kind of a multi-dimensional thing in that it's built on a lot of academic research, but it's shaped in a way that's really accessible, so that anyone can read it and get a feel for these stories. That Buddhists have been telling for a very long time, but that we don't always have access to.
1: Right. Maybe you, that's the
2: fairy tale part.
1: <laughs> right. And and you mentioned that you know that there are, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of tellings of these stories, right, in the Buddhist yes. tradition.
0: Yeah.
1: Which makes it a very vibrant thing. You know, we we used to monolithic things sometimes, like the, you know the Bible or the Quran. You know, the, that's the one and only book. But uh, Buddhism great. is not quite like that, is it? There's this, this uh, retelling, reimagining, new sutras coming out, perhaps um, that, that look at look at the way, look at these truths quite differently. And so, why not? You can you, you can build your own, right? This is this is a new text around that, a new reimagining.
2: Yeah, I mean that's that's exactly it is that the way what we're used to in the west is that we have what we call in religious studies a text-centered tradition so that you have one text and the tradition pivots around it and is constantly renegotiating, reinterpreting, rethinking that one text. And so the tradition stays vibrant in Judaism and Christianity and Islam by giving you new layers of interpretation and new readings of that one text. But what you have in Indian traditions is something really different. Um, With Buddhism and Hinduism functions the same way, that you have, instead of one text, you have thousands of texts. The tradition just keeps telling its stories, but in new texts all the time. So there's this kind of an open invitation to keep kind of recreating and rethinking these stories. There's a skeleton, there's kind of an agreed upon direction of the story, but then it's been told in so many different ways. There's this kind of extraordinary openness to rethink it again. How do we tell the story again? Right, And so everywhere Buddhism goes, the story gets told in a new light.
1: And of course, you put a very feminist inflection on this. After all, it is the, the Buddha's wife's story, right? Not so much about the Buddha, though. Of course, he's, he's an important part of it. But uh, you're at pains to point out, you know, the the difficulties that, that she has to go through. I mean, she's rejected and later on her son is rejected, um, or rather taken from her she feels rejected and um you know that's tough isn't it and you, and you bring up topics like um you know the menstrual cycle and and uh, you know the idea of it being pollution and whatnot um you know to, to reframe this in a, in a different light again you know the hard uh, road of being a woman throughout history yes yeah although i don't
2: know I get asked this question a lot about whether it's feminist or not, um, because there's so much strong women material and bodies of women and things that women go through. But I don't know if it's like I I mean, everybody can decide for themselves how feminist they think I am. But I really was just telling a story as a woman would tell it as I imagined it. Right. And so when women are telling their own stories and they're imagining and they're expressing how they're experiencing their lives, then. All those things like menstruation and pollution and births and attempted rape and all of those things are part of women's experiences. So I don't know that it's very feminist. And what's interesting is that if you look at the way the early storytellers told her story, they gave her attention too. And so I'm kind of shining a light on something that many male writers had also done. This is not so out of the norm, right? So her story, Uh just for, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if might be helpful to kind of give like a little bit of um, like a, a, a sense of what the story is for those listeners who don't know the narrative. Um, so the story is that the Buddha, when he was really young, uh, the legends say that he was told, the father was told that he would grow up to be either a great king or a religious renunciant. And the father didn't want him to become a religious teacher. So he decided that he had to do everything he could to keep them locked into the palace to ensure he doesn't become too philosophical. And so he shields him from suffering, and the prince grows up this way in this really kind of shielded world where he doesn't see any suffering, and he doesn't have a real sense of how hard life is. Um, And then they still want to anchor him to the world because even though they've done this to him all his life, there's still this sense that he could there's a risk that he's going to float away. And so they then decide that he should get married. And the woman that he marries is Yashodra, And what the texts tell us, all of these kind of hundreds and thousands of texts, is that when he marries her, he's actually married her so many times in the past. So she's not just kind of inserted to fit a bill, but she's part of these storytelling traditions forever, that she's been there lifetime after lifetime with him, next to him, being reborn next to him and being married to him for so many lifetimes. So that when the ministers say, we think you should get married, she's going to be the one. Like, they gravitate towards each other because this is what they've been doing for so many lifetimes. So already there, you have a sense that these male writers are imagining a much bigger story with her in it, right? So it's not right. so feminist. It's it's really what they were imagining as they saw a full story of a person's trajectory. Um, and so then they get married. Um, do you want, like, should I keep telling the story or should I? Yeah, sure, that's, wanna, fine. Like, that's fine. But it'd be
1: good for folks to um,
2: I think, yeah, so they get married, um, and there's this wonderful scene where he chooses her, right, of all the women in the land. So it's very Cinderella like. And this is in the text is that all the women are presented to him, and he looks at each one, and he's not interested until he sees her. And she's the last one to arrive, and she's the one, right? And so there's this sense of like kind of cosmic multi life recognition. And so he chooses her, and she chooses him, and they're married but of course he's going to become the Buddha. And so he uh, still has that philosophical inclination in him. And one day he sneaks out of the palace and he sees old age, suffering and death, which is what his father had been shielding him from. And he does that on the day that she's giving birth. And so the texts really cr- kind of create a parallel life for these two characters where he's seeing suffering and she's experiencing it by birthing. And so they're, they're creating kind of a man's world and a woman's world, and they're, they're drawing a parallel between the two. And when he comes back, he, real, he can't stay. He's seen suffering and he knows he has to go. And so one of the texts tells us that he goes to see, well, one text says that he goes to see his father and he negotiates kind of his release from prison from his father. But another one of the texts tells us that he goes to see her and she's sleeping with her newborn son And he won't cross the threshold to enter the room because he knows that if he enters that room and he touches his son, he'll never be able to go. And so you have a sense of his kind of complexity and his longing for a family life and also his longing for a philosophical life. And the two don't mix in this narrative. And so he doesn't wake her up, he doesn't touch his son and he makes his great departure. And her moment is the next day when she wakes up and she finds out that he's gone. And she's so strong, right? And she's angry and she's got things to say and she She doesn't just kind of sit in a corner and say, okay, I guess that's what my husband's going to do. These early poets and writers, these male writers, created a world in which she had a voice and she was strong and she had (laughs) accusations to make. How could you let my husband go away? How come no one woke me up? Who is responsible for this? Why didn't you tell him about me? Why didn't you remind him of me is her question to everyone. So on the one hand, I, I can see why so many people think of this book as feminist, but what I'm doing is I'm pulling out sources written by men where they imagined a woman's feelings and her experiences, and I'm kind of gaining my inspiration from them. I don't think it's just a feminist retelling. I think it's a retelling of the text, and I think that's really exciting to like realize that these male authors 2,000 years ago heard her voice. Do you see what I mean?
1: Absolutely, yeah, and I think I think it's wonderful, but i I love the idea that you know the Buddha learns so much, obviously becomes the the awakened one right but but yeah, Dodara also learns so much, you know, but in a totally yes. different way and uh, and they sort of mirror each other in some ways. there's that moment where you know this that you tell about uh, Siddhartha, the Buddha going out into. The fields and seeing the you call it the so, silent suffering, um, seeing the ordinary workers you know working, and it's 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 one of his first openings to the fact yeah. that you know everything is not just sweetness and light. And um, and I, what struck in my mind was when you said the Buddha realised or as Siddhartha as he was then realized that everyone was alive you know up until that time these were just backdrops and you know to the, the painted screen of his life. But as he saw the workers he was realizing everybody's alive there is no real hierarchy. we're all in this together and and, and you know Yashoda has a similar experience when she goes out and, and talks with the, the farm women right and um, and, and understands right. that they are, they have their reality too they, they are valid. And I love those two moments because they 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 ground both the characters into something deeper than just the the painted facade of the of the palace, right? And um, so yeah, the Buddha learns, but she learns too, right? She she has uh, exactly yeah deepening understandings, which which makes it lovely. You know, um, when you read it as a universalist symbolic text, right? It's slightly different, isn't it, from when you read it as a a drama right for for instance you know um when i when i see uh the all the events at court, uh you know being um attachments uh, in various ways and and that the buddha needs mm-hmm. to get away from all these attachments then then it seems like okay well that's reasonable you know i would see you know you have to let go um but when you draw it into the as shakespeare might do you know or, or a novelist like yourself in this case, you know, brings it into the human reality. Then that, that it, it opens up an, another set of of problems or challenges, if you like. Right? It's not quite so simple as to say, "Oh well, you know, I'm overcoming all all attachments, so I have to go and leave." Um, there's, no. there's nuances, yeah. right? And and that's what I love about the book. I think is is it um, it, it, it it elucidates uh, and um, illuminates. The, the nuances, right? The, which which makes it quite fascinating.
2: Well, I think, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm so glad you picked up on all of that. Uh, it's very kind of sensitive reading to it, her experiences and his experiences being paralleled. Um, but yeah, I think that's what's so powerful about these stories is that they're universal, that they're not just specifically about this particular culture and time, but they're complicated stories about like having a, a desire to live... A, A different kind of life but then realizing all the consequences that will come with it right Right. that it's not just okay he's going to become the buddha that's great and that's what that's how we tend to tell these stories right is oh the buddha was a prince and he left home and he became the buddha great except it's not because the story is painful because by choosing to follow that path and to become an awakened being as this tradition talks about him he broke everybody's heart Right. He left the kingdom. He left her. He left his father. He left everybody to go pursue this dream of his. And so it is great. And it's also, like you're saying, so much more complicated and and it's universal and it's personal and it hurts and it matters on everybody's front. Right. So, I mean, the, there's stories in the literature where they say that, you know, there's lots of gods in the cosmos of Buddhism. And so some gods are so excited that he's finally leaving home and they kind of push open the doors of the palace gate so that he can gallop off unimpeded. But then there's other gods who start sobbing and their tears are like rain all over the palace because they're losing him. Right. And so you have this like both types of gods are there, some that are so excited that this is going to happen. And others that are devastated because they liked having him in their domain right Right. so you always have these multiple layers that the story isn't going just one way and when we tell stories too simplistically we lose that part and it says so much about the human experience right that when we make one decision it's great on one front it's also devastating it's always like that
1: yes there's a both end universe that we live in as i as i like to say um but I love yeah. the idea that you imbue everything with a, a numinous or divine quality, right? As I, I'm in, in many ways that the modern uh, Buddhists and Hindus do today, right? That uh, there's a spark of divinity in everything. So everything's sacred. And we've yes. lost that in the West, right? Uh, you know, the, the, the demons uh, have, have left the, the pond and all that, you know, that we're... We, we see nature as a, a commodity and a, a resource to be mined, rather than something sacred. Mm-hmm. And I love that idea yeah. that you know everything's holy. You know the, the trees, the and you, you that that's like a a motif throughout the whole the whole book um, is nature. You know the coming of the monsoon rain. I think is beautifully told. You know because the, the the northern plains of India can get very hot and dry um, and <laughs> you know oppressive. And then it's like merciful release when the monsoon comes, you know, and soaks everything and everybody's out, even though they're supposed to be in mourning because of the loss of um, the king's wife. Right. They can't help themselves from celebrating the coming of the monsoon rain. This, that's a lovely, that's lovely right. chapter. Um, but also, the you know, descript- your description of the king's private garden, the peacock garden, um, you know, that's a place of magic. It reminds me of uh, fairy tale again. You know, it's a perfect place Um and you know, uh, even the the termites, uh, their their um, their nests or whatever, the mounds uh, are sacred to yeah. the to the people, right? So it, it's it n- nature is imbued with um, a, a greater sense of um, connected to us, connectedness to us because of that as well.
2: Yeah, no, I think that's really important, and I was very conscious of that throughout the writing. Um, and I think I'm going increasingly conscious of how much we have separated ourselves from all of that, so that yeah. maybe I think you're right when you say that in the West we don't have that sense of you know this the natural world being alive being important. we it really is like our backdrop.
0: And right.
2: I think maybe part of what's happening with climate change right now is we're so surprised that like that the natural world has something to say, you know, that, that it's going to be expressed disruption or something because we expect it to be tame all the time. It's kind of like we've domesticated our animals and we've domesticated the earth and we expect the earth to just do what we say. And because we don't view it as having a kind of aliveness. And I think previous generations did, but I think we've gotten increasingly separated from the natural world. And so it surprises us when it responds. But if you go to places like in traditional areas where where traditional cultures are still kind of thriving in Nepal or wherever, there's still, it's also becoming, you know, very Westernized and consumerized, but you'll find that trees are still sacred and rivers are still sacred and they still get polluted. Right. So it doesn't stop people. So it's like not a picturesque world out there, but there's still a language it's kind of dying, but there's a language that, you know, the natural world has like, we have to have a relationship to it and it has things to tell us, right? So that trees all over South Asia, people worship them to this day. Like you'll be walking down a busy street in like New Delhi and you'll just kind of in the middle of the pollution and the smog, there will be a tree that somebody's worshiping and that somebody has tied ribbons around it. That's not something we see much anymore here. It doesn't, I think our First Nations communities, I think in the States, you don't call them First Nations. The indigenous certainly had that for a long time.
1: Absolutely. Um,
2: but we've, we've kind of thrown all of that away, and now we're surprised that the natural world has a uh, uh, capacity to speak, you know, and to resist well, us.
1: Well, and, you know, I think the more and more people are wanting to get back to that, you know, there's, there's uh, movements abroad, you know, the people wanting to connect, whether, whether they're naturalists mm-hmm. or, or, or just want to get out in, their, um, in nature, you know, and, and explore or they're into, you know, neo-paganism or whatever. You want to connect to the cycles of the year or whatever. I, th- I think that that's, that speaks to the, the fact that we we want to reconnect, right? But you mentioned yeah. about the pollution, um, and it's it's one of those both and things again, isn't it? The conundrum of yep. India, certainly. You know, it's it's polluted. It, it there's all kinds of bodies floating around in it and exactly. all that. And yeah. yet people are going down every day to, to do an ablution you know to cleanse themselves and and it's, it's seen to be holy um you know there, there's a goddess uh, chamundi uh that rep- is uh, one of the, the, the aspects of the of Devi, the you know the female entity um mm-hmm. it is the the goddess of uh sores and, and emaciation you know um so it's like the, the Hindus can embrace everything. You know, they, there's a God of everything. In other words, nothing right. nothing's beyond the pale. Um, everything is embraced. And that's yeah. radical, right? Because we demonize half of the things we don't like. You know, we give it to the devil and, you know, everything that's bad. Well, the problem then is you're living in a dualistic system and, um, you know, and, and you, you there's a divisiveness about that. That doesn't exist in, a, in a, um, a, an embrace, you know, which I think the Hindus have and the Buddhists have to a degree. So it's fascinating I stuff. think that's
2: true. Yeah, no, I think that's true. I think what by dividing it, you know, God's domain and the devil's domain, we've really kind of split ourselves in half and it, it makes us feel kind of disconnected right but when you have a sense that i mean there's wisdom to that as well like i don't want to kind of do a an either or of western religions and indian traditions but i think one of the things that indian traditions have to offer that's really interesting for us to think about is that instead of having you know they'll have a god of death and they'll have a god of birth but they're not diametrically opposed instead it's the god of death is in charge of the realm of death which means that when it's time somebody needs to enter that realm the god of death will appear and the, god, the goddess of childbirth, whether the childbirth goes well or it goes badly, it's her realm. So when you give birth, you want to, you want to summon the goddess of childbirth and, and hope that she you know, is kind to you. But then you want her to go. Like, you don't want her to stay. She has her time where she's around. And if, she, if your baby dies, that's her too. Right. Like, everything that has to do with the realm of birthing is her domain. And so if she takes the baby away, or if you have a healthy baby, that's her decision. So it's not, she's not good or she's not bad. It's just, she has her territory and she has to run it in a way that makes sense to keep cosmic harmony. So instead right, exactly. of her being bad, it's, she's not bad, if she takes your child, you may be angry at her, but she, it's not, you know, like it's, it's not a punishment. It's just, this is what she needed to do in this circumstance. So it's a very different reaction to suffering and to kind of divinizing the natural world.
1: And you know, it's the same with the Hindu gods. You know, uh, we have Shiva, who's sort of a, an erotic ascetic. You know, he's, he's you know he spends <laughs> ten thousand. Yeah, yeah. He spends ten thousand years meditating, and yet he's also the most potent of of uh, entities, right? So he, he's both. And, yeah. Again. Um, you know, exactly.
2: Dave, it's the both and. Yeah,
1: right. we see Devi, you know, in in the form of uh, Parvati or, um, you know, what, uh, Annapurna, you know, the giver of food or whatever, um, you know, and and yet she's also Kali and, and Durga. And of course, you, cause you mentioned right. Durga yeah. quite, a, quite a lot in the book, right? The the power of Durga to, to overcome when all the other gods couldn't deal with the negative mm-hmm. forces. You know, she she comes out of Shiva's. Um, In energy, if you like, and and borrows all the weapons from the the gods that couldn't couldn't overcome the demon and, and, um, you know, rides this tiger or or lion into battle. I actually have a a statue of Durga right in front of me as we speak. So, um, yeah, I've always always been very close to to Durga energy because it's it's that power uh, of Mother Nature. You know, it can create a hurricane or it can create a rose exactly. right? that, that's that's the yeah. nature of this
2: yeah yeah i think that that's what is so clear in how hinduism constructs itself is that it can be both the hurricane and the rose um whereas i think we struggle with that a little bit more in the west because we have the good and the bad yeah and it's just not the hurricane isn't bad and the rose isn't good it's it's just not our, like it's just not talked about that way they're just both natural expressions right
1: absolutely
2: so yeah i think that's beautiful
1: so folks, um, I think we're moving towards our break, but uh, I think you'd really enjoy this book, Yashodara and the Buddha. Uh, it was written by Vanessa R. Sassen and you can get it in all the usual outlets. And it's it's different because like I said, it's a blend. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's got fairy tale elements. Um, it's got some um, hard hitting moments. It's got some romance. There's, there's times when you'll probably cry um, but you'll get a, a newer understanding of this tradition, and a new understanding, perhaps, of the uh, of the Buddha, and, and certainly of, of his family. Um, so so there's a lot in it too, uh, and it's it's not written in a heavy format. It's something you can easily read, and like I said, it's a bit of a page turner because you, you think, well, what's going to happen next? I got to find out. So uh, <laughs> it's wonderful stuff. So uh, let's take a break. Um, we'll. Listen to these messages from Unity, and then we'll talk some more with Vanessa. Join us in a moment.
0: Let go of everyday worries and find your calm with positive prayer from Silent Unity. The newest in voice-activated technology available on any Alexa-enabled device like the Amazon Echo. Each prayer and meditation on positive prayer will help strengthen, guide, and comfort you. To enable it, just say, Alexa, open positive prayer. You can ask for a specific prayer on topics like healing, prosperity, and comfort. Give it a try today. Experience the Difference. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. We now return to world spirituality with Reverend Paul John Roach.
1: So, welcome back to today's show on world spirituality on the Unity Online. Radio Network. I'm Paul John Roach, and I'm with Vanessa R. Sasson. We're talking about her book, uh, Yashodara and the Buddha, uh, a wonderful novel um, based around uh, Yashodara's life. She was the wife of the Buddha, and uh, we've been talking about all kinds of subjects related to to the book because that's what happens. The book um, brings out so many uh, interesting ideas, I think, that uh, over and above the story itself. There are some magical chapters. Um, uh, Vanessa mentioned the one about uh, the choosing when um, they, the, the Buddha and your shoulder choose each other. And that's that's very romantic. Uh, but there's the, 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 the most moving chapter for me was uh, the one called Tapestries. Um, and uh, the, it actually, I got a tear in that one. Um, because the, the, the Buddha's horse, uh, you know, well will tell the tell the story because it's a, it's a wonderful story and, and also about the chariot, uh, the, the rider, um, the Chana. Yes. Chana. Yeah. Tell us about the chariot. that.
2: So the well, I'm trying chariot to remember that. tapestry who tells the, the chapter of, um, of her dealing with the loss. Is that, that where you're. You're at. Is that the chapter you? Yeah, mean? and
1: and the the chariot, charioteer was a strong, strapping person, but having gone through all the suffering of losing the yeah. Buddha, uh, you know, become thin and emaciated, and and then we yes. hear that yes. uh, his horse that the, he loved so much and obviously loved him,
2: died. you know, did yeah. not
1: so survive. Died, and, and so it's a tearful moment, you know, of and of course Yashoda herself is going through grief because she's lost her husband. So the the three coming together there, you know, all parts of uh, the male, the female, and the animal kingdom, is, is is kind of beautiful. Uh, I mean, it's traumatic, but but very uh, moving.
2: Well, it's that it's that moment of like realization that you know the world that you had constructed, uh, that she had expected, that she was married, she had a child, she thought that her life was set up in a particular way, and to wake up one morning and to discover it's all gone uh i i like ever since i've you know going through the pandemic i feel like there's so many moments where that story now becomes universal with the pandemic of that moment when you wake up and you realize your world has changed and you didn't plan on your world changing changing and things have been taken away that shouldn't have been taken away and there's a tremendous amount of loss and of grief and so she wakes up and she learns that her beloved husband is gone and she she's devastated and she's hurt, and she's rejected, and she's feeling everything under the sun, and so she goes through moments of depression, and she can't hold her child. She doesn't know how to engage with this new reality, but then she also has moments where she's just so mad, like, this is not fair. You can't leave me, and so this particular scene is the scene that actually, um, I drew a lot of inspiration from a Sanskrit text from the first century that it's just so beautiful. It's this beautiful poetry by a male writer from 2000 years ago who had this scene more or less, I mean, more or less is how I've had it, where she goes to find the chariot driver who drove him out of the palace. And she wants to hear from him, you know, how dare this happen. And so she charges into the stables to find this chariot driver, Chana. And she's kind of smashing doors open and whipping, you know, anything she can out of her way. So she's kind of like a hurricane going through the stable, looking for this man who escorted her husband away from her. And then she finds him. And Chana, this chariot driver, is devastated. And she didn't expect that. You know, she she just didn't expect anything because she's so, because this is what happens with loss and with pain is that we become very self-centered, right? Because we're experiencing our own pain. And so she, it never dawns on her that everyone else is upset too, that he's gone. And so she arrives in the chariot, in the in the stable, and she finds him there. And he's, as you say, emaciated. And it's he's just, he can't believe, you know, that he's just watched his master leave him. And what we find out at this point is that he begged the Buddha, please let me go with you. Let me accompany you. Please don't send me back to the palace alone. You know, part of it is humiliation for him. And part of it is he doesn't want to see this man go away all by himself. I mean, he was a prince in a palace, and now he's going to go walk into a forest barefoot all by himself without protection. And so he feels, you know, tenderness to the Buddha and, and loyalty and concern. And so he begs him, please let me go with you. And the Buddha says, no, because this is something he has to do by himself. And so he comes back and, you know, this story, the scene happens a few months later, and he's just beside himself that he let the Buddha walk away and she finds him like that but she doesn't expect it and then she's looking for this horse and this horse is a magical horse in the buddhist imagination he's this great white steed who's supposed to be so powerful he can charge across three kingdoms in one night and when he neighs uh, it's like a rumble that will wake up everyone for thousands of miles and he's super powerful great horse that only the buddha could ride and so the buddha took off on this horse with the chariot driver behind him and you know, they both came back, but the chariot driver comes back, but the horse isn't in the stable. She said, where's the horse? And that's when she finds out that this great mighty horse that can do just about anything, who's this magical creature could not, the one thing he could not do was come back without the Buddha. And so he dies in a field as he watches the Buddha walk away. And so there's this real sense that it's not just her that's suffering. But the trick with suffering is that when we go through it, we forget that everybody else is suffering, too. And so she just didn't compute all of that. And it's only by talking to him and looking him in the eyes and and hearing that Kantaka, the horse, is dead, that she begins to overcome the suffering that she's been caught up in, that she begins to overcome her own selfishness and realize, oh, there's more to this story than just me.
1: I think that's more (coughs) of that. Excuse me. That moment of both recognition, coughing. both got coughs here, yeah, excuse me.
2: Sorry. That moment of
1: recognition when she feels, uh, you know, the, the common humanity of that person yeah. and the horse is, you know, it, it speaks to all of us because we've all been through that, you know, where we can think That's of it. nothing but ourselves. Then we realize, no, this is, you know, this is a common occurrence for everyone. And compassion arises, right? And, and a, a deeper sense of being alive, actually, of being. A full human being arises, and that—that—that's right. that's what makes that chapter powerful. The very chapter's title, I think, speaks to it, right? We're all part of this uh, tapestry. We're, we're all interwoven with each other, um, and, and again, it's that both-and thing, you know. We're—we're we're the warp yeah. on the weft, right? Where they come together to create this—this um, this beautiful thing—and yet it comes at such expense, you know, at such cost as well. Here's my question. I don't want to not ask this before we run out of time because there's so many things to talk about. Um, you know, many people say that you can you can only attain um, enlightenment or awakening, you know, by leaving, uh, as the Buddha did, you know, and and sit under the the Bodhi tree until the, that, that moment of awakening. Other people say, well, no, you could you can be a householder and still attain awakening. Yeah. Um, and you know it, it, that it's, it's it's possible either way. What's your view on that?
2: Um, I mean, I don't know. I, I'm certainly not a you know some kind of enlightened Buddhist teacher that can speak with any authority on that. Uh, yeah. I'm a scholar and a and a writer. Okay. Um, so there's much better people to ask this question to. But I think the tradition, I think the tradition does that kind of wrestling match again that we've been talking about right through this hour of. Yeah it's you know sometimes it's a yes and it's a no and it's a maybe and it's everything in between there does there's a lot of emphasis in buddhism on the importance of having the right conditions to spiritually evolve and that i wouldn't underestimate so even if the tradition is going to say yes you can be you know washing the dishes and still achieve awakening and many people argue for that worldview there's also the argument in buddhism that but if you're too busy all the time washing the dishes and, you know, chasing the rat race and doing all the 50 million things that we have to do as householders, um, there is a there's a logistical challenge that you can't pretend isn't there, that you do need quiet and you do need time and you do need good teachers around you to guide you through this maze that is the mind and to figure out how to free yourself of all these shackles that we've covered ourselves with. So. On the one hand i think yes it's possible in any circumstances and if you're heroic and evolved and amazing and has this like extraordinary like chance to have great teachers in your life while you're living a busy life amazing but i do think that it's i think it's a very very hard thing to free yourself um, and to become a being of extraordinary compassion i think most of us get caught up in ourselves and i think that's true for monks and nuns too Right And a monastic life is also quite busy. It's not that like the householder life is busy and the monastic life is quiet and solitary. Monks are quite busy also, and they tend to have a lot on their schedules. They have rituals to perform and they have to take care of their monasteries, and they have people that come to see them that are in distress. and so they can be busy from morning till night, and sometimes that doesn't do it either. So right. I don't know that it's so much being a monk versus a householder as it is what kind of a monk or what kind of a householder, and what, teachers do you have around you and what what circumstances are you surrounded by and if you can live a life monastic or householder where there's quiet and there's good teachings around you and there's spaciousness to be able to evolve and opportunity to practice generosity and to care for others I think it doesn't really matter whether your head's shaved or not so I do think it's a question of the quality of your life and the kinds of people you have with you if you have people banging on your door and screaming all the time and a lot of hate around you all the time and anger, whether you're in a monastery or not, doesn't matter. That hate is poison.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, well answered. You know? Thank you. Thank you. And, uh, you know, I think we get involved with linear time sometimes too, in terms of attainment, you know, if once, if I get it all right and I keep working hard, you know, eventually I'll attain this enlightened state. Whereas, you know, the, the Buddha also said that, you know, the enlightenment is right here right now. Right. In the midst of what you're doing, you you, the Buddha nature is within you, if you like. And um, relaxing into that and becoming aware of that uh, it is it, it can happen anywhere at any time. And you know, don't have to be on top of a mountain or in a monastery, um, but, you know, but uh, we, we tend to look at it that way. You know that it's oh, well, there's special beings that could do that. But um you know, I think we're all we're all capable of of realizing the the truth of our of inherent inherent nature, right?
2: I think so. I think Buddhism certainly gives that space. but I would also say that Buddhism is also really cautions us to be very humble because yes. like if you think of how the Buddhist story is told, he achieves awakening after thousands and thousands and thousands of lifetimes of effort. And that's a really important part of the Buddhist story. Like when we tell the like secularized version of the Buddhist story, we have a prince who was born and grew up in a kingdom, blah, blah, blah. But the way Buddhists will tell the story and the way the the texts and the storytellers tell the story is that his story starts thousands of lifetimes before he's born as a prince. This is not something that one achieves in a second. So whatever you achieve in a second is the product of thousands and thousands of lifetimes of effort. And it takes so long to be able to dislodge that self-centeredness that we're all prone to, right? So there's also a kind of real calling to humility that there's only so much you'll accomplish in this life. Don't get ahead of yourself, right? Like we have habits that are so deeply ingrained. If you can undo a little bit of one of them, (laughs) well done for this life. And then you continue your efforts next life. That's also a kind of very strong Buddhist worldview, you know?
1: And I, I think that's uh, that's salutary because uh, in, in new thought and unity, you know, we tend to, to, to talk about cheap grace sometimes. You know, I behold the Christ in you. You know, I recognize you as, you know, a beautiful, perfect child of God, whatever. And that's wonderful, isn't right. it? It's, it's a great affirmation. But sometimes I think we can have God in our pockets. You know, we can think, well, yeah, I'm, I'm divine or whatever. It leads to a, a, kind, yeah. of ar- a kind of arrogance if we're not careful. And I, I like the idea of humility. You know, Jesus himself was was a very humble being. You know, I myself can do nothing. You know, it's the Father within me that does the work. Um, and we'd be wise, I think, to take take on board some of that that humility.
0: Yeah.
1: So I'm still an advocate of, of um, instant enlightenment. You know, the, <laughs> if, if, you, if it's, you know, what, I can't remember which uh, Zen master said, you know, one moment of recognition, you know, when you're enlightened, one one moment of ignorance and and then it's gone, right? It's it's, uh, it's what we bring to the party at any given time.
2: This is, it's true. I mean, the Zen tradition articulates things very differently from the Indian tradition, which is where I'm speaking from. Um, So the Zen tradition will do that, but it's kind of also creating a mental puzzle for you by doing that, right? Um, Right. So much of what the way Zen organizes itself is to kind of play with your head and play with your expectations. True. to kind of mess with you, to let go of your expectations. So I wouldn't hold on to those stories too much. I think there's, there's really a sense that this is, this is really hard work, right? That this, this, this attachment to the self, this sense of I come first is really fundamental. It's our survival instincts, right? I mean, some people would say Buddhism is insane, <laughs> like you can't let go of your survival. Like, it's like we're built this way. And so to undo the way we're built to undo this idea that I don't have to come first, that I am equal with everything, you know, that I am part of everything. That's very profound and maybe even impossible to really get to. And so I, I think, I think, this, I think the, the, the Buddhist hope or request or uh, kind of offer is really, really, really nuanced and really difficult to touch. Right and I think that's why they give you such long stories of rebirth, like this is we're going to be at this for a while, right, right. and then Zen comes in and plays with that, right and but it's playing with that idea and shocking you, right, But well, I think if we go too quickly to that Zen idea, we miss what it is that it's trying to shock us from,
1: yeah, and as Westerners, we always want to get to the you know.
2: We want it to be quick.
1: <laughs> yeah, give me the payment. You know, I, I need to get to the yeah, the answer real quick.
2: Yeah, that, well, we're very accomplishment driven, right? Like we want to accomplish <laughs> everything and we want to do everything. Yeah. We're very, you know, driven that way. and it And it is great because it gives us skills and abilities. We do things like in some ways other cultures don't because we're so driven. On the flip side, though, <laughs> you can't be driven to achieve awakening. You know, I right. think there is a point at which you just kind of have to let that one go.
1: Yeah. And you know, even traditions in Tibetan Buddhism like Mahamudra or Zogchen or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, which which are sort of instant nat- natural great perfection, uh, you, know, um, they're, they're, um, you know, they're, you uh, know, they're, what's the word? It, it was unwise for us to just jump straight into those, you know, in the tra- in the Tibetan. Well,
2: you're not supposed to.
1: You might yeah, do a three you're... a three year retreat, you know, to to discuss those uh, or enter into the consciousness of those places. So uh, Well, that's we'll, right.
2: You have a lot of training to do before, but even in those cases, these are not things for us to dabble in, right? So right. it's not th- these traditions are really there's a there's a really clear hierarchy of steps, and in the West we tend to skip all of them, <laughs> right? right? But there's these these systems which, if you believe in them or don't like this, you don't have to take it on. But if you if this is something that you want, uh, you have to have a teacher who guides you. And that teacher may think you're never ready to take this on, or you have to do 10 years of a particular practice, or you have to, you know, just listen to people, tell them their problems in the monastery for 10 years or cook in the kitchen for 10 years. Like, these are not things that you get to decide, okay, now I'm going to do this practice and then I'm going to be awakened. It just doesn't, the system isn't set up that way.
1: Oh gosh, all right. You're not, you're not encouraging this year. It's it's going to be hard. No, I'm not. No, I'm just, I'm just it's kidding. It's so I'm just
2: kidding. hard. <laughs> but I think that's the idea. Like, I mean, if it wasn't, we'd all be awakened, right? But I think, you know, yeah. what's easy is to give in to our desires and give in to our fears. That's what we all do. Yeah. That's, you know, that, to find the maze, your way through a maze of fear and desire and let that stuff go. I don't think almost anyone does that.
1: Well, you know, no, I was a minister in a church for 30 years. And, um, you know, at the end of the 30 years, I could have gone on for another thousand years because, you know, job security hmm. is, is, is enfolded in the job. You know, it's not like, right. well, after 30 years, they should be all enlightened now. You know, if, if it was that easy, well, we, we'd be out of out of a job. But it doesn't it doesn't happen like that. It's, it's a slow, slow incremental path. Uh, up, yeah. Up, the mountain so yeah another question i want to ask is um you know it struck me that every every single character in the novel is aspects of us right so um you know the, the, the both siddhartha and and his wife uh, you know uh, different aspects of how we how we show up and i thought the the, the you know the surrounding characters also you know we, we they're parts of us because we contain everything right um so mm-hmm. the, the one interesting ca- uh, character in the in the aggressive personality is uh, David Danta, right? It, um, hmm. yeah. Talk about talk about him because he's not much fun. He's always aggressive. He's arrogant. He even tries to usurp the throne at one point and, and, and get uh, your shoulder to marry him, right? Um, that doesn't work, yeah. but Uh, Who is he? Well,
2: he's like your, he's your Buddhist bad guy. So he's kind of like the Judas of Christianity. He's the one that you blame everything on. Um, and kind of like Judas, there's like some interesting paradoxes with him as well. Cause again, that's the theme of our discussion. I think for this whole hour is all these paradoxes.
0: Yeah. But
2: so in the literature, he's a cousin of the, I mean, everybody's kind of cousins with the Buddha. So he's also a cousin. He's kind of part of that network of that world that they're all kind of growing up in. Um, and he every like depending on the text that you read every time like a bad thing is going to happen it's david that's behind it um he's extremely jealous of his cousin he's jealous of the throne he's jealous of all the of everything that the buddha achieves and so he really manifests that that jealousy and that greed and that anger um and he takes on that role for the tradition and so he comes up all the time as this bad guy and the way he comes up uh in this story is So I told her there's a scene that I put in the book that only appears in Tibetan texts. It doesn't appear in other earlier Sanskrit texts, but that I found so insightful where they tell a story in these early Tibetan narratives of after the Buddha leaves and she's alone in the palace. What these writers became sensitive to was the fact that, well, if she's alone in the palace without a husband, she's vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And this is something he does. The Buddha did to her. Right. Like he left her vulnerable. He left her without a protector. And it's so articulate and strong of them to recognize this is what happens to a woman in a, in a society like this when the husband is gone. And so she's now vulnerable. She represents the throne. And in this Tibetan version of the Buddha's life story, Devadatta comes and he tries to take her for himself, which is what would have happened, right? Is that a man could have easily laid claim to her because she's got no protector anymore. And so in this Tibetan text, He uh, attacks her and he tries to rape her. And she actually fights back with another woman and pushes him out the window. That's actually the story in the Tibetan text, which is so amazing that, again, these male writers were imagining the vulnerability of a woman and what would happen to her. And they have her fight back. She's not a victim. She actually, like, it's an amazing story. I really wrestled with that, whether I should put that story in the book, because only the Tibetan tradition has that story. And I could well imagine that other traditional Buddhists reading the book would get really upset to imagine someone attempting to touch the sacred person that is Yashodra, right? It's like somebody trying to touch Mary, right? Like you
0: just can't tell
2: a story. Like it's very kind of scary to kind of go there with this kind of a narrative. And so I wrestled with it for a long time and I got advice from a number of monastics and they all told me, no, this is, this is, this makes sense. Right. The story makes sense. It belongs in the story. And it shows how strong she is, right? That she kind of just manages her way out of it and survives. Yeah, it's a great, it. and, it's a
1: great uh, right? moment, you know, where they, they, they get him, throw, they throw him out of the window. That's great, and They,
2: they and, throw him out of the window. And that's really the story. It's kind of wild. Yeah. So it really gives a sense to women's vulnerability and to a fear that all women have to face, right? Of whether a man will at one point try to take them for themselves. All women yeah. have to have thought about this. And, many women have experienced it and so here you have a story where it doesn't happen to her and i don't think it could happen to her for the buddhist imagination that would be too much but that's not how this right they just they just put it out there as something that she has to deal with and what's interesting is that when i've done interviews with people from buddhist countries like sri lanka or malaysia that's one of their first questions is how could you put that scene in there because it's not yeah, part of their interesting
1: tradition, yeah
2: right because and yeah. it's kind of scary like you can't tell that story that's not our story
1: Right, I love but, it, de-
2: but it is part of the Buddhist story.
1: I love the detail, too. You know, he, he lands with a third and then there's silence. And later on, his show <laughs> says, I hope he's OK. And and the, the servant girl says, "No, it's OK. You know, I heard him uh, shouting obscenities as he ran off. So, yeah, he's all right. <laughs> um, but, he, right he, but that's also, also
2: like a real fear for her. Right. Because what if they killed him?
1: Then well, it's yeah, a whole other level. That would be another. Right? Yeah, yeah.
2: Right. Then a woman killing a man and she's definitely guilty, no matter what the circumstance.
1: Right, so it's also he... very Go ahead. sorry yeah go ahead no let me well, it... i don't want you to finish
2: <laughs> well it's just that it's points to this kind of really delicate place that women often find themselves in where if they manage to push the guy off and you know get away from an assault um, right. then they're okay but if they but if they kill him in the process in self-defense then the whole story is different for them Right. And so yeah. then they can be accused and, and suddenly they're to blame. So that's the kind of moment that I felt she was dealing with and that she was aware of. Like, I'm glad he's not dead because then I have a whole other problem on my hands. Exactly. Right? This is the reality. Yeah.
1: And David, that is a bit like um, the, the me, I guess, that wants instant enlightenment. Right. He's always grabbing for things. Um, and, <laughs> he's and grabbing when He everything. became a disciple. Right. He was contentious there. Um, I can't believe we're almost at the end of the show. Let me tell everybody about next week and then we'll have our final thoughts. Um, Next week, I welcome uh, Blake Hester. He's professor of philosophy at Texas Christian University here in Fort Worth. He's also a meditation teacher and an ecologist. We'll talk about the ecology of self, how to live a nourishing and hopeful life in a dangerous and divided world and find out all about uh, Blake's various activities. So that should be fun. Um, Final thoughts, some wisdom for us to take into our week, Vanessa.
2: Oh, I don't know if I have any wisdom. I just think we have to just keep listening to stories and hearing what they have to tell us. I think the old stories, sometimes they have everything in them. And if you look at them anew, you'll find all kinds of stuff that you didn't think was there before. So just keep listening to stories.
1: I love that yeah and it's the same with the Gospel. You know, if you read the Jesus' yeah. stories in the Gospel, they're they're forever yielding new information for me at least. and and I, and that's yeah. the universal nature of these of these wonderful stories, yeah, so yeah, it's a good good advice. And there's a lot of story being told in this book. So get hold of it, folks. Um I want to thank you, Vanessa, for being on the show today. What a wonderful hour.
2: It was such a pleasure. It was really nice to talk with you.
1: Likewise. I hope we get a
2: chance to do this again.
1: That would be cool, wouldn't it? Yeah, but I'm going to get hold of that book on, on Moses. And uh, maybe we'll, you can talk oh, about goodness, that that was one a long too. time
2: ago. <laughs> Is it? It, <laughs> okay. it was a good one, though, I no. bet,
1: wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> thanks, thanks for listening, folks. Uh, have a safe and uh, happy week. And we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye now.